Yeah, man, we want to welcome you to our gathering again. Again, uh, if I don't know you, I'm Kyle, the pastor of Preaching and Vision here. And as we settle in, I want us to go ahead, if you have your Bible with you, you can open it to Luke chapter 11. Today we're going to continue uh, in this series called Storyteller, where we're looking at the parables of Jesus. And today uh, we're going to be looking at a parable on prayer. Now, for those of you that have been with us over the last three weeks, and man, those of you that, man, you're visiting today for the first time, uh, man, over the last three weeks, what we've done as we kick this series off is I laid out a, a working definition uh, for the parables in the hopes that it would help us engage them. And so what we know about parables is that parables are stories that come from the context of everyday real life. So when Jesus is speaking in these parables, He is speaking about things that those listening would know. And so these, these stories from everyday life, what we find is that they are both simple, and yet in many ways they are very profound. They are very deep. Uh, if you read through the parables at times, what happens is Jesus will share a parable and then uh, everyone listening, and I, I just picture in my head the disciples are off to the side and they're shaking their heads like, yeah. And then they go off alone and the disciples are like, hey Jesus, um, uh, yeah, what does that mean? Right. Can you can you tell me, can you tell us what it means? Uh, and so Jesus would spend time breaking down and sharing uh, really the depths of what the parables mean. And so they are both simple and yet profound. But in all of them, every single one of them is meant to teach us about what life in the kingdom of God is like. Jesus wasn't just getting up there and just sharing random stories and random tidbits of wisdom just to say, hey, I know a lot. The reason Jesus shares these parables is because what he's saying is he's saying, hey, look, the kingdom that I, that it is here and now and that, that will one day, that, that will be fully fulfilled in the making of all things new, right? That is ever expanding. He says, man, this kingdom, this is what it's like. I love what Jesus in, in, in the parables. There's some, he, he says, man, those who have ears, let them hear. So open your ears like, hear what I'm saying. I'm not talking about other kingdoms. I'm talking about the kingdom. You see, Jesus came proclaiming a kingdom. But it, not only was it to be everlasting, it was to be different and better than any and every other kingdom. And man, when we hear that today, even as we engage and begin to walk into this parable, this story, uh, what we have to realize, and man, what we have to wrestle with. And for some of you, this is going to set well. Uh, and for others, maybe I think for all of us in various seasons uh, and in various moments, man, uh, we have to realize that this means... Even our little self-made kingdoms, right? That His kingdom is better than our own little self-ruling, self-sovereign kingdoms that we seek to establish. And so if you were to place them side by side and try to compare our kingdoms to the kingdom of Christ that He has established, man, really kind of the reality of that, that would be like uh, me and my youngest son sitting down and, and deciding that we are going to have a Lego build-off. And he's going to build a castle, and I'm going to build a castle. He's three years old. Guess what? It's not going to go well for him. Right? Because for a while, 
He's going to sit there and he's going to put together an asymmetrical bit of randomness that has no color pattern or scheme. And he's going to explain it to be something that it most certainly is not, right? Like he'll put four blocks together in 30 seconds and be like, castle. And I'm like, no. He goes, dragon. Closer. No. Right? Keep building, right? But while he's doing that, if, if I am in task with the same thing, I'm going to take my time and I am going to color code a symmetrical piece of artwork that's going to carry both beauty and function that will have towers, maybe a moat and a water feature, dragons, knights, everything. And what's going to happen in the end is either he's going to get frustrated and quit Because the pieces aren't going together the way he likes them. Or he's going to decide, hey, I don't want to do that. I want what you've got. I want that. Now that might be a bit of an exaggeration because I'm not the greatest Lego builder. But still, I think it says a lot about when we are met with the reality of our little kingdom versus God. There's going to come a time... Where either our kingdom is crushed, which ultimately it will be. If you continue to build your own kingdom, it will be crushed. Because guess what? His kingdom is the only one that will ever stand. Or, by His grace, you are met with the reality that what you have built is not worth it. And you will look to His kingdom and say, I want that. You see, that's what we're after. See, this is the first step in what it means to live life. And what I mean, I mean living real life in the kingdom. It is the realization that even in all you can muster, your kingdom is temporary and it pales in every form and fashion in light of Christ's kingdom. Therefore, may we lay down the keys to our kingdoms and submit ourselves in worship to the only king worthy of worship. You see, this is the life we are presented with in the parables where we are met with this true and better kingdom. And so what we've looked at, we've seen that God's kingdom through the mustard seed in the leaven parable is far more expansive and intensive than we could ever imagine. Christ's kingdom, although it may not look like what we think it should look like, His kingdom not only affects all things, His kingdom is making all things new. No other kingdom can do that, right? Because at the end of the day, every other kingdom, when they're met with either self or the betterment of others, guess what? We're always going to look out for numero uno. Not only that, it's a kingdom, as we saw in the parable of the hidden treasure and of the pearl, that has a value that is both immense and innumerable. You see, God's kingdom is a kingdom that's worth giving up all for in light of the realization that He has given up all for you. He gave Himself. And then last week, we saw the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. And we see that Christ's kingdom is a saving kingdom that rescues and rejoices over those who are brought into the kingdom. That he searches diligently and goes out and then he doesn't rebuke and and, and cast down and say, get it together. It says he picks up the sheep and puts it on his shoulders and, and he brings it back and he rejoices and celebrates. He seeks out the lost and by His grace brings them into a kingdom that is both everlasting and good. 
And you see our response in all this, and our response will continue to be, is to go and proclaim this kingdom to others. Both in the words that we speak and the lives that we live. And so this leads us into our time today where we're going to look at a parable on prayer. But really, before we look at the parable... We have to look at how Jesus talked about and modeled prayer. And so let's look at Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. It says this. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, and we we began our time with this. Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Okay, so what we find here in Luke 11 is Jesus, he's actually praying in a certain place. Now, now if you look at the Gospels, if you look at the life of Jesus, what you find is that prayer is something that Jesus was engaged in all the time. And there are many times... That you see in the, the writings of the Gospels that Jesus, after teaching, after healing, after leading all day before the multitudes, it says that He would go off to a secluded and quiet place and do what? He would pray. And you see, the disciples have been watching all of this. They've been walking with Jesus. They've seen everything that He has done. And so in the midst of it, and in the midst of their watching and Him modeling, they go to Him and one of them says, Lord, teach us to pray. Now this is interesting for a couple of reasons. First is that they use the term Lord. You see this disciple coming to Jesus and asking to be taught something. They saw Jesus as an authority on what it meant to pray. You ever get around someone and they're really good at something? You're like, man, I want to learn that. Like if I, you know, I, I, um, when Haley and I started dating, we had a bakery. She had a bakery and then we had a bakery and uh, then we shut down said bakery. uh, And we're okay with that. Uh, And so we, but I remember like watching her decorate cupcakes and I was like, man, she's really good at that. I want to try. Could not. I could not figure out how to pipe the top on a cupcake. Like it would not work, right? But she was just like, boom, 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 on and on. And so I was relegated to something that I could do really well, which is just put sprinkles on top. (laughs) I was really good at that. And washing dishes. Uh, Our first, my first time here, I spent all day, she baked, I washed dishes in the other room, right? And that's why she was like, I'm going to keep this one, right? But you ever, you've been around, like you see, like even going, you've ever been to a sporting event and watched an NBA player just warm up and you're like, oh man, like they know something about shooting that I do not. They don't miss. You see, they're looking at Jesus and they're saying, hey, there's something about the way he prays. It's different. It's not the way I pray. It's not even the way I've ever seen anyone pray. You see, seeing Jesus in this way as an authority reveals their understanding of need. Their understanding of lack and inability to produce anything by themselves. Man, do we hold the same posture of humility when it comes to anything, right? Man, it doesn't take long. Like my three-year-old, if you say, hey, we're going to do this, or hey, you need to go do it, and you try to show him what is his first response. No, I know how. He doesn't. 
And so sometimes I'll just let him flail around and try and then get and I'll say, no, like, let me show you. But we do the same thing. I don't need to know how to pray. You just say words and then say in Jesus name, amen. Or it's, hey, I don't need to know how to pray. I'm just telling I'm giving God my list of everything I want, right? I want that new car. So we say, I, I don't really need to know how to pray. The other thing that's interesting about this is, uh, is that, man, even after all they'd seen, man, they'd seen a lot. If you, if you just go a few, page back, a few pages back, a few chapters back in Luke, what you see is Jesus has calmed the storm. And it not, it's not that just, he just calmed the storm. It says that, man, the, the, the wording that's used is that the, the water was like glass. The wind and the waves obeyed him. 5,000 people are fed with, with loaves and fishes from a, a small child, right? He's raised the dead. He's healed the blind, right? The lame walk. And yet, they come to Jesus and they don't say, hey, teach us how to do those things. No, they say, hey, would you teach us to pray? You see, they recognize that prayer, which prayer in its simplest way is communication with the Father. What they realize is it was key to everything. And so if Jesus, who would say that he did nothing on his own, but only by the will of the one who sent him, which led him to live a life marked by prayer and fellowship in the presence of God, then why do our lives seem to be filled with such lack when it comes to prayer? And I don't know about you, but if I'm honest, I don't think my first ask would have been to pray. It would have been all the other things, right? I would likely be far more selfish. I would go after the cool factor. Because, I mean, let's be honest, calming a storm seems far more awesome than prayer, does it not? Raising the dead, healing the sick, walking on water. Those are the things we're after. Because man, if we're going to be honest, we want that self-glory. But prayer, well, prayer's just a bit dull. See, I think before we dig in to how to pray, we have to sit and wrestle with why we don't pray. I mean, how many of us in the room are completely satisfied with your prayer life? And if you were asked to describe your prayer life, how would you describe it? Man, for some, maybe in this season in life, you're like, oh, it's going great. You know, like I'm having like those Paul experiences, right? Like third heaven, like I'm, I'm praying without ceasing. Well, what are you praying about? I want that car. <laughs> I got to have it. And I know if I pray enough, I'll get it. Maybe for some of you, you're like, oh, no, it's down, right? I'm not praying. I, and I know, like, and it's not like a guilt and shame thing. It's like a conviction thing of just, man, I know I need to pray more. Maybe if you're asked, you're like, no, man, my prayer life is frustrating right now. I feel like I'm trying to pray, but man, I just, I don't have the words or I don't know what to say. I don't, you know, just feels clunky. 
But again, if the disciples understood that prayer was key when looking at life in the kingdom Christ was proclaiming, then we have to press into why we don't pray. So why don't we pray? Another way to ask it is, why do we struggle so mightily to pray? Well, here's just a few, maybe a few reasons. Uh, if you're at, like a lot of people say, why don't, you, why don't you pray? Well, they'll say, well, I'm undisciplined or I'm lazy. You see, but when you do that, what happens is you go quickly to the works of self-motivation and your own ability. If I can't do it, then I'm just lazy. And maybe you are being lazy. I'm not going to just cast that off to the side. But when we have this attitude, it doesn't go deep enough. These attitudes toward prayerlessness are based upon self-reliance and they are prideful, graceless, unmotivating, and they place the focus on you, not on Christ in you. And at the end of the day, they are poor excuses that don't get to the root. I think another reason we don't pray well is because of poor discipleship. Maybe we never had it modeled or taught. Maybe we ever had anyone around us who could say, hey, will you teach me to pray? Or maybe you did. Maybe you didn't ask it, but all you were taught were just formula prayers. You know, at mealtime, you say, God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. By his hands, we are fed. Give us Lord our daily bread. Not a bad prayer, but that was the only thing. It never went deeper than that. It just became just a chant, right? I got to do this so I can get the food in my mouth. Maybe the, the only time you saw prayer was in desperation. When things are good, I don't need to go to God. When things are bad, oh, I'll be there. Some of our poor discipleship is just because of our culture. Our culture says, hey, you can do it if you try hard enough. You don't need to pray because you can do it. Grab your bootstraps, pull them up, and go. I don't care if it kills you. You can do it. You don't need to pray. Just try harder. You see, prayer is to be a part of our lives. The Bible says it's be constant. He says pray without ceasing. Then we move forward. There's, I mean, another honest answer is that this self-reliance and really this mentality of shotgun prayer or, or this mentality of I see God as a genie that I rub the lamp and he better come out and give me what I want. He grants our wishes and whims rather than being who He is, which is the creator and sustainer of all things, is due to the fact that, man, I think if we're honest, we're just not that sure that prayer does anything. Does it even do any good to pray? I mean, have you ever prayed, like really prayed for something to happen and it didn't happen? And I'm not talking about a selfish thing. I'm talking about selfless things. You see, I believe that a wrong posture and unmet expectations in our prayer lives, because often, even though they're selfless, man, we really, it's for self. Like, I need that. When we have these kind of unmet expectations in our prayer lives along with wrong views of God's kingdom and our place in it, what it does is that leads to calloused hearts and prayerless lives. 
You see, what we find in this passage is that there is a way to pray that is God honoring while also satisfying and empowering to our lives. And so Jesus sets out to teach the disciples and us today how to pray. And up front, it looks far more simple than we make it. You see, again, like on the one hand, we want the formula. A plus B has to equal C. One plus one has to equal two. If I say it, I get it. If I name it and claim it, then I'm going to receive it. But while we want a formula, Jesus reveals simplicity. While we want to display knowledge... What I mean by that is have long prayers, right? We get really wordy and, and articulate and we use words we don't even know the definitions to. But that was me right after high school. The first time Haley and I met was at church camp. And she said the only thing she remembered about me is I had long hair with like blonde highlights in it. Uh, that was just l- amazing. Uh, and I prayed a really long time. You see, I wanted, I wanted people to know that I could say a lot of words. But while we want to display knowledge at times, Jesus reveals dependence. While we want to dress it up, what we see in this passage is that Jesus reveals that wisdom is found in coming to God just as we are. Eugene Peterson, when talking about prayer, says this. He says, prayer as seen in Scripture, especially in the Psalms, is an extended refute that prayer is simply being nice before God. No, Peterson says, prayer is an offering of ourselves just as we are. But it also it is also access to everything that God is for us. Holiness, justice, mercy, forgiveness, sovereignty, blessing, salvation, love, majesty, and glory. We get to come to God in prayer just as we are. But guess what? God comes to us just as He is. Which leads us to the beginning of the prayer which says, Our Father. So prayer, Jesus reveals, begins by being met with the reality of who we are in light of who God is. We go before God just as we are. And guess what? God says, this is who I am. And He is Father. What that word means is He is authority. He is over us. We, in that moment, by saying our Father, we're making a distinction that He is Creator and we are what? We are created. And the reality of it, what, and just in saying that, what we have to realize is that we are unworthy. And yet, as His children, what, he's, what Jesus is saying, He's saying, as His children, what? You go to Him as Him being Father. You see, we have to get this right. Not just that that we need to have the correct term for God, which God is worthy of that, but that we need to have a posture, but that is also related to our identity and who we are as children. And I think for some, for many, for all in various ways, that creates issues whenever you start talking about father, right? We've all got some father issues, some more than others. Some deeper than others, some more hidden than others. And so when we think about calling God Father, what we have to realize is, man, we are His children. Like, we are who we are. Like, if, we, if you're a child of God, right, if you have been brought near by the grace of Jesus, He calls you His 
child. I mean, as children, we are too. As my children can come to me, they can run to me. Right? But some of you are like, I couldn't run to my dad. Later in this passage, we're not going to go into it today, but it says, man, if a, if a son comes to his dad and says, hey, I want some bread, will he give him a scorpion? Or if he asks for this, will he give him a snake? Like, it's like, no, a good father won't do that. Some of you are like, well, my dad tricked me sometimes, right? Not even in a battle, like, you know, like we experience those moments, but what Jesus is trying to articulate and get is that God is way better than any father we could ever imagine. He's perfectly good and he cares for us as children. I believe that prayerlessness is often rooted in a wrong view and understanding of God's love for us as a good father. Man, I want to encourage you to work through that. To begin to ask yourself, how do I view God as father? And how does my view of God as father, how has that been impacted by my earthly father or father figures? And then what does the good news of Jesus have to say about that? And I encourage you not to just work through that yourself, but work through that in, in community and maybe even counseling. Because counseling is good, okay? So he says, our Father, and next it says, hallowed be your name. Two things quickly regarding hallowed. Hallowed means both most beautiful and most worthy. God is most beautiful. He is that pearl of great value. Seeing and proclaiming God as hallowed is to say that you are more worthy than anything that the prayers are filled with. Even before you get to the prayer, you're saying, God, you're more worthy than anything. No matter what happens, no matter what comes of this, you are worthy. No matter the circumstance. And God being the most worthy, what we have to understand is that we are not the focus. He is the only one worthy of our worship. He's the only one worthy to be worshipped. We live to bring Him glory, not the other way around. Next, Jesus says, your kingdom come. As we proclaim and place ourselves in worship before God in prayer. Because guess what? Like prayer is an act of worship. When you go to God in prayer, you're saying, look, no, you're it. That's why in the Old Testament, that's why in our culture today, like there are so many, there's so much idol worship. What they're doing is when you go to something, you give it your worship. When you talk to it, when you put your hope in it, what you're saying is, God, no, you're not worthy enough, but He is. What we have to realize in saying your kingdom come is that it is His kingdom, His rule and reign that we are after. He is the good king that rules in grace, power, and perfect wisdom. Guess what? Our kingdoms fail. His does not. You see, the problem so often in prayer is that we go to God seeking for Him to serve in our little kingdoms rather than allowing Him to rule over our lives. And to proclaim for the kingdom to come is a mark of submission to the kingdom over one's self-will. Jesus is our example in this. In the garden, Jesus says, God, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. But what? Not my will, your will. He's our ultimate example. It's also the posture that reveals one's willingness to not just enter into the kingdom when it works for you, 
but to participate in the kingdom in kingdom living no matter the cost. Again, the reward far outweighs the cost. In Christ, you have no ultimate cost. He already paid it. Give us this day our daily bread. This, this act of prayer is a prayer of taking the position of dependence. Man, today are you dependent on God? Your prayer or prayerlessness reveals where your dependence lies. I love the phrasing there, today's bread. Well, what he's, what the, 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 the wording means is, uh, I trust you to provide for today, therefore I won't worry about tomorrow. Not only that, but he's not just talking about literal bread. What, what the, the, the motivation is, is that God is our ultimate source of everything. Therefore, let's go to Him for every need. No need is too small. And he says, forgive as we forgive. And in our prayer, one thing that we often move out, unless we're in desperation or uh, we feel really ashamed, is this act of confession. Man, confession is so key. It's important to our lives for two reasons. First, when we confess regularly, it doesn't allow sin to fester. You ever walk in sin and you're like, I'll just confess it on Sunday when I get to church. I'll just confess it tomorrow. I don't have time right now. No, confess now. Don't let it fester. Not only that, but confession changes our attitude towards others, does it not? When I'm practicing consistent confession, I'm more likely to give grace in light of the grace that I've been given. Then it says, lead us away from temptation. You see, this prayer includes crying out for strength, protection, and empowerment in the midst of life's battles. For we are in a battle. The victory has been won, but we are in a battle. And we cannot do it on our own. We are led by grace day by day. So we get this picture of what it looks like to pray. But now let's look at the parable. Beginning in verse 5 through verse 10. And Jesus said to them, which of you has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him and he will answer from within. Do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot give up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his uh, impotence, he will arise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find it. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, it will be open. All right, so following this teaching on how to pray, Jesus gives us a descriptive parable about real life that teaches about the great value that comes with prayer. Really, he's saying, hey, this should be your heart in going to God in prayer. Again, it's not about a formula. It's about a relational conversation between you as created and God as creator. But what I want us to see is that it's not an informal relationship. Rather, it's one that is close, loving, and filled with grace. This story, we get the picture of two friends. We're told about this friend who goes to another friend at midnight and asks for bread. 
Now I want to break down what's taking place before we move on so we can get to the significance of the story and how it should grow our lives of prayer. So, again, remember, all of these stories are meant to talk about real life. They take place in the context of the culture. I love, uh, I've been listening to a series recently by a guy named Matt Chandler, and he says, man, and throughout the entirety of Scripture, anything that's written, uh, it, it, it can't mean for us what it didn't mean for them. Right. Like and so what we see, like, what does this mean? What is the context and where Jesus finds himself? And the reason he tells the story is because in this culture, it was a hospitality culture. It was a culture where hospitality I'm not talking about just like waiters and waitress type of hospitality. I'm talking about the opening of your home and your life to others, a willingness to give of yourself It was a big deal. It carried a lot of weight when it came to relationships because uh, also with this hospitality culture, this culture was a shame culture. And so if you didn't provide hospitality, man, there would be a lot of shame either inside you or from the outside that was cast upon you. And so we read this and we hear about this hospitality culture. And I think, again, we have to be met with the reality of like, is this us? Is our culture a hospitality culture? No, the way we've defined it is you provide for me and I might give you a tip. That's the only hospitality we know, but that's not biblical hospitality. You see, we tend to not trust hospitality. I remember whenever we've moved into, uh, we've been in two neighborhoods and we've gone and talked to our neighbors and, and certain, you know, certain neighbors have kind of looked at us like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't want to come over to your house. And they almost don't trust us. Like, well, why would you invite me in? You, I don't want to share a meal with you, right? I don't want to get to know you. We don't trust that someone would be nice, that they would invite us into their lives, especially their homes. They would serve us. And then to top it all off, which makes it even like the guard go up even more, they genuinely care about who we are. Who would do that? That's crazy. But this is what we're called to. Which is why, and man, this is just a plug for something that's coming back next month. This is why we, one of the reasons we do missional communities. Is we want to model this type of culture. Both in the church and to those outside the church. Because guess what? We miss it in both capacities, right? We want to model this because our culture desperately needs to grow in hospitality over isolation and distrust. And we are the ones that model that. And so what it says is in this hospitality culture, a man goes to his friend's house at midnight. Now I want you to just put yourself in the story. Let's just walk through what's going on. So first, while this guy is a friend, he's likely probably not going to be a friend tomorrow because it's midnight. How would you feel if one of your friends just starts beating on your door and ringing your doorbell at midnight? But, but, but to take it further, midnight is way different than what we experience at midnight. There's no electricity. It's dark, dark. You don't know, you can't even see your hand in front of your face, right? The closest thing I can attribute it to is I went to Haiti a couple of times in college uh, and we stayed at an orphanage and they had no electricity. And so when the lights went out, You went to bed because that's all like you couldn't. We couldn't see each other. 
which was, for me, a first world person, was one, uncomfortable, because it's hot there, and all I had was a little battery-powered fan to keep me cool, but it was also concerning because in Haiti there's tarantulas everywhere and they just kind of run wherever they want. And so it gets dark and you're like, I don't know where they are. And they would be in your sheets and they would be under your pillow and they would, and so you're just kind of lights go out. Like, so before lights go out, like you're like shaking everything out, like, hey, we're not doing this again, you know, hoping you don't hear any screams in the middle of the night. But, but it, it was dark, dark. But finally, this man begins to beat on his friend's door and it says his friends wake up. His friend wakes up, but it's not just his friend. This guy lives likely in a one-bedroom house with his whole family and probably some animals. And so he's beaten on the door and it wakes everyone up, right? The guy even says, he says, look, the kids are in the bed with me. Like, what are you doing? Don't like you can wake me up, but don't wake my children up, right? You have children, you know what that is. Like we had a thing on our doorbell that said, "Do not ring this doorbell because you ring it, I want to I want to murder you, right? Like my kids are taking a nap. Don't do that, okay? Like we know what that's like. So he comes to the door, and the guy, as soon as he opens the door, the guy says, "Hey, I need three loaves of bread." He doesn't ask for one loaf, which probably would have been enough. He doesn't ask for, he asks for three. So he can be hospitable to a friend that's just arrived on a long journey. So this guy in a hospitality culture has nothing to be hospitable with. So he goes and asks for another's hospitality so that he can then show hospitality. Guess what? This isn't in the notes, but like in and of ourselves, we have no, we are not hospitable. I'm hospitable to me. So guess what? The only way that I'm hospitable is by going to Jesus, who is the hospitable one, who invites us in and gives us life. He's the bread, right? It satisfies us. So this guy is seeking to show hospitality, but it isn't like he, he makes an exorbitant ass. He says, three loaves. Now. We need to realize that this is not an emergency. He didn't cut his hand off. He wasn't bitten by a tarantula. This probably could have waited till morning, and yet the guy felt secure enough to go to his friend in the middle of the night to wake him up and say, hey, I need this. And I love the friend's response. I love the way Jesus tells the story. Because, man, while this guy is wiping sleep out of his eyes, it says, in his heart. <laughs> Which I think, man, it, like that just gives me so much relief, right? Like... At times we can read the Bible and be like, I could never be like them. No, like we all do that. Like in his heart, he's like, I want to punch this guy. Right? He's like, I'm not giving him anything. Except for like a restraining order. Like I'm done, right? Like get out of here. He says, and yet, due to his persistence, he got what he asked for. That word for persistence there, uh, impotence, is, is boldness and persistence in asking. And then Jesus, he makes this statement that we get twisted and we're about to talk about it. He says, for to the one who asks, it will be given to him. The one who seeks, he'll find it. The one who knocks, the door will be open. So that in the, so, so, uh, you know, we, we see that. And so what in the world does this have to do? What does this story have to do with our call to pray? 
We've learned how to pray. Well, what does this mean for our lives of prayer? Well, man, the answer to that, I believe, is everything. You see, this story tells us everything about our call to prayer in light of how to pray. And so I want to share a few responses, one problem, and then uh, an encouragement before we close out. So what are our responses to this? I think our first response is that we need to pray fervently in bold prayers. We need to pray passionate prayers before God. And to do that, we're going to have to begin to see that we have a better friend in Jesus. And that when he says, man, come to me, which often our view, and I think the reason we don't go to prayer is we think that God's just angry up there. Saying, oh, here comes Rich again, asking for something. Golly, when will he just try hard enough and get it together? I'm so tired of answering his prayers, listening to his prayers, right? But that's not what we get in this story. Jesus actually says, he says, man, in in terms of prayer, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. And cry out to me. So we need to pray fervent and bold prayers. Next, we need to pray with persistence. Continue knocking. Don't stop knocking. I know for me personally, oftentimes my prayer is, I'll pray something once and then I'll be like, well, we'll see what happens, you know, like, gotta go on. What's on TV? What's on Instagram? I always say, man, keep knocking. Next, we need to pray trusting prayers. What I mean by trusting prayers is trusting that the one who gives us daily bread knows our real needs. And so whatever happens, he can be trusted and seen as good. And when you know that and realize that, you will pray boldly. And lastly, we need to pray affirming prayers. In prayer, we are affirming that God is our source of life. That He is the one who meets our deepest needs. And He is the fulfiller of our greatest desires. Hallowed be Your name. Therefore, we must look to Him first, knocking at His door, seeking out His will and receiving that which we are given. Which leads me to the problem is that the end of that parable, ask, seek, knock, man, it has been twisted in such disgusting ways to where we think it, well, it, it, we've turned it into a prosperity gospel. This, we, we've turned it into something it's not. It's often detached from how, the how to pray that begins the chapter, which is, and is led to a name and claim it type of prayers. And man, those type of prayers only lead to sin, selfishness, a wrong view of God and the kingdom. And guess what? Much disappointment. When we do this, we seek to make God a genie in a lamp that when rubbed must come out and do our bidding. It's a wrong view of the kingdom. Praying like that, man, like in saying, you know, I'm going to, I deserve, like, no, we don't. We deserve death and are given life only through Jesus. I believe that much of our prayer life is simply seeing God as a gift genie rather than a sovereign king that rules over all. This has led our prayer lives to be self-centered and shallow moments of wish-making where God is the cosmic Santa Claus that will give us what we ask for if we're good enough and ask in the right way at the right time. 
But man, as I thought about that, I was like, well, what is the different way? You know, because I, I also like I want you to hear the man going to God and asking and praying for things and, and crying out for things in need. Like it's not always a bad thing. OK, but, but I began to reflect on, man, what's a better way? And I was hit with the reality that, man, maybe we're praying for the wrong things, especially in terms of if Jesus is talking about the kingdom are our prayers are asked, are they about the kingdom? Man, what if we prayed fervent, bold, persistent, affirming, and trusting prayers for deeper holiness? Does your prayer life look like that? Hey, what are you praying for? Man, I'm just praying a whole lot right now that God would make me just holier and that I would turn from my sin. No, usually it's like, I'm just praying that God would give me this, right? Maybe we would pray for deeper faith, for greater stewardship of our time, giftings, or our finances. Maybe we would pray for our friends and neighbors to radically come to know God's grace. Man, that's a prayer worth knocking at the door for. George Mueller prayed for like 70 years for his best friend to come to faith. He died. His best friend came to faith at his funeral. Right? Like that, he knocked on the door over and over and over again. That we would pray for addictions in our lives and the lives of others to be broken, for our enemies to become friends of God. Woo! And for our friends as well to become friends of God. That we would pray for reconciliation. Man, that we would begin to pray for the kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. May we be a people that look to our model Jesus in the garden over and over again. Not my will, but your will. Not my will, but your will. I want the kingdom to come. I can be satisfied whether I'm free or in prison, as Paul says, whether I'm rich or I'm poor, whether I have or I don't have. Like It doesn't matter because guess what? I have the kingdom. And I'm asking for more of that. And we begin praying like this. And I want us to be known as a people that pray this way. Not only that, but I want us to be a people that marvel at the God who is gracious and good to honor our fervent knocking. It's good news today. So I'm going to have Jordan come back up. I mean, I want us to just spend some time reflecting on that and, and, and just, man, thinking about, man, how do I pray? What, well, why, why, maybe, why do I struggle to pray? What do I need to lay down? What kind of kingdom am I trying to build? And then, man, what does it look like for me to pray differently? Maybe begin to cry today, God, man, I want your kingdom to come. God, teach me to pray. Teach me to depend on you. Let all the, all the other things just kind of fall by the wayside. I just want you, Jesus. May we pray differently. Out of an overflow of the good news. And today, if you're hearing this and you're like, man, I haven't given my life to Jesus. Man, I want to invite you to give your life to Jesus today. If you need to talk about that, if you have questions about that, man, come and talk to me at the front. Um, I'd love to pray with you. We're going to share in communion. If you're a follower of Jesus, man, I want to invite you to come and share in communion. I know there's some of you that would prefer. Uh, we have some individual cups. You can grab that. Um, uh, but also we have the bread and you can just dip as well. But we want to invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus, to come and share. And man, the, the, the sacrifice of Jesus who said, not my will, but your will be done. And man, it cost him his life, but he rose in victory.
That's what we remember and celebrate. And we're going to worship. And then we're going to go out and celebrate another picture of what that new life looks like. So Jesus, I pray now, God, that you would stir in our hearts just a fervent desire, a new, as we sang about earlier, man, just a fire would build up in us that we would uh, be a people of prayer. That we would not allow just, uh, man, all the, the, the peripheral things uh, to uh, the, the desires of our own kingdoms to, uh, man, to uh, draw us away, but that we would look to you, that we would cry out for your kingdom would come, that we would pray kingdom, gospel-centered prayers. And that we would see you move in a mighty way in our lives and in the hearts of those around us. Lord, that desire only comes from you and by your grace. And so we ask uh, for you to move in a mighty way. In Jesus' name, amen.